Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Luminos. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. Well, we're back on Earth, but our heads are still up in space where there's no air, hmm. so we've, we I might f- die. I feel like your 4th of July went differently than mine. No. <laughs> No, I did not. I was not on a firework. I was down on the ground. My feet were firmly planted on the ground, as always. That's good. I like it. That's, that's where all of us want you to be here with mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. with the people. So we have some pre-flight checklist items. That's what yeah. we do. Uh, Mike Pence is running the National Space Council, so that's a thing. The National Space Council used to be a thing in like the '60s and '70s, and then it went away. And then it was under the George H.W. Bush administration that went away. And now it's back again. Just you can't kill it. You can't kill this council. It just keeps it just keeps coming back. And in the past, this council has been tasked with guiding U.S. space policy, like kind of like kind of like a task force within the administration. It seems to be that that's what is going to happen this time, uh, too. There's an executive order that kind of outlines some of this stuff. A big part of this is going to be, and we've talked about some of this, but the relationship between NASA and the federal government and commercial space companies and dividing up, you know, what they're going to do, what NASA is going to do. And it's really kind of unclear. You know, there's kind of factions within the space community. Some people think NASA should do what it's always done. Other people think that we should lean into these like public-private partnerships so this council is going to have to wrestle with all that and kind of see where things should go. Yeah, it's interesting the because um, the NASA administrator is uh, it doesn't exist, right? There's an acting administrator, but there's been no nomination. Uh, that hasn't happened. They have no leadership uh, that has been put in place by the by the new administration, which is you know six months old now. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a minute. Yeah, but but this does at least there is a movement here in terms of like who's going to set space policy in this administration, where they've got they've got the vice president chairing it. The plan is, according to this Verge report that I'm looking at here, um, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, I and the NASA administrator. Um, on one level, you know, uh, the military interaction with space is a thing that has existed and will continue to exist. So having the secretary of state and defense on that panel uh, makes sense from that perspective. It does give me pause that there is a diplomat and the leader of the armed forces and then the person at NASA in this council, because it seems like we do a lot of uh, um, civilian purposes of exploring space that are not necessarily directly military related. Then again, a lot of astronauts have military backgrounds. So it's just one of those things where I wonder what this means. And I don't know enough to read the tea leaves to know what this means in terms of a kind of balance of influence over NASA by, um, by the executive branch, by the military, the rest of the executive branch directly from the, from the white house and, and uh, via the secretary of state and secretary of defense. It's interesting and of course, there is no NASA administrator. Again, this is one of the questions: is where is this? Where is this going? Um, and they don't just cover NASA, right? They are co- they, the, this pa- council does cover um, 
space stuff for the military, which is why they're participating. It's it's not an oversight of NASA. It's an oversight of the whole space picture for the U.S. government. So it includes the Air Force, which um, I saw a story this week about like somebody once again bringing up the possibility of formally creating a, um, a U.S. space force that would be a branch of the military, a formal branch of the military under the Air Force, which... Um, I don't know whether that will happen. People have been talking about that for a long time. So there's some stuff rumbling around, and yet we haven't heard a lot about where this is actually going to go, where the the new administration that is becoming increasingly less new wants to take this. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. It's a House Armed Service Committee proposal to talk about the Air Force's current space mission and sort of giving it basically a new branch, like Space Corps people to deal with it right space Corps. It's, that's it space Corps. they'd have space cool Corps. pins and, and insignias and stuff for sure oh they're gonna have the best branding of 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 the mall yeah you, you have to so we'll have an article about uh about that on vox in the show notes it, it's definitely early days in that conversation but it it would sure be a, a big change to how things have operated and the the air force secretary she's come out against it right she yeah. wants that to be under her jurisdiction, which makes sure. sense from her her perspective. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. So we're going to keep an eye on that. It's um, it, it's just a lot of change, potential change in policy, or it could be one of those things where, you know, this is just more red tape and it just nothing really changes, right? Well, or the council just doesn't prove to be help, you know, useful. But it's I think it's too early to say either way. Yeah, and the Verge story, which is Lauren Grush again doing some great work. She de- depicts the that there's a definitely a couple of factions involved here, and it's not. It's pretty much what you'd expect, which is um, the group that is sort of NASA focused and you contract with suppliers and NASA puts it all together. And then there's the sort of commercial space, commercial crew and cargo. And that's the let's let SpaceX and other companies do a lot of this work and contract with them, you know, buy buy the have NASA buy seats on their rockets rather than pay uh, big uh, contractors to build the rockets for them and that they manage it, which I know on one level seems diff- seems not that different bureaucratically, but it actually is um, pretty different. I'm, I'm, you know, again, I feel like there are people with a lot of strong opinions about this, and I'd be interested in 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 seeing who has the upper hand here because I I don't know about you, but I talk to people about uh, space stuff. I actually had this happen um, a couple of weeks ago where somebody who acted like they really knew what they were talking about, but turned out they seem to actually have no idea. And I think this is telling because I think it means that there are people who have a pretty colossal uh, failure to understand what's going on in space. I talked to this person and they, and they confidently said, yeah, it's, um, it's a shame that we don't do, um, we don't, we don't go into space anymore. And I said, what? (laughs) Hmm. And he said, well, you know, they shut down the, sh- the space shuttle. So now it's just the Russians and the Chinese. I said, well, mm. it's not, it's a little more complicated than that because there's the commercial space that's going on right now that's going to put people in orbit and there's going to be, and take them to the space station. And then there's, they're, they're building the next generation stuff at, you know, for NASA. And so there's a pause where we can't uh, launch Americans into space from the U.S. right now, but they still are sending people into space and they're working on these new generation systems. And they're like, oh, I, you know, there, there was kind of like, uh, I've seen this with multiple people who felt feel like when we shut down the space shuttle program, that literally was the end of 
of the U.S. space program, which is not right. at all true. Um, but I could also see how, depending on who's in charge of space policy in the administration, you know, there's a there's a question of um, where do they want this stuff to go. My gut feeling is that political expedience is you want to you want to show during this administration you want to have an American launching into space from an American launch point on a rocket that is either run by NASA or is run by an American company. I feel like that's your that's your ultimate goal is to be able to wave the flag and say, look at us, we have reclaimed what was given away by our predecessors, which was American access to space on our own. Because politically, I can see why that, that works visually, especially for all those people who currently believe that the U.S. space program kind of folded up its tent after the last shuttle launch. Yeah, that's sort of... Public education is is an interesting topic, you know, and talking about the new administration getting rid of the educa- the Office of Education within NASA, uh, it, people just don't have a clear picture. And that's, you know, we've talked about forever on the show that that one of NASA's jobs is that PR, right? That to have p- the public engage in what they're doing. And clearly that hasn't and doesn't reach everybody. But I'm... I want to be optimistic about the council. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not particularly optimistic about it, but we will, I guess we'll see. Yeah. July 4th marked the one year anniversary of Juno arri- arriving at Jupiter. There's a lot of J's in that sentence. Juno, Jupiter, July. Mm. And so, uh, Ars Technica, there's a, there's a nice sort of roundup of some stuff, uh, some images from Juno. We've talked about these. I think you and I both have Jupiter as our desktop on our iMacs. Uh, Juno has given us imagery of this planet that far exceeds anything we had before. And even though Juno is a, a spacecraft that has been plagued with with issues, right? We've talked about how they had thruster problems. So it is 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 still in these longer orbits where it can only come close to the planet like once a month. And it... Even though that's the case, they're still getting the science done that they want to, but it's not the time frame's all messed up now from what it was going to be. But I, I would say, even with that, I think Juno is meeting its goals. And there's this article you put in here about the great red spot on July 10th. What, what is this about? Yeah, so uh, one of the highlights of any uh, tour of Jupiter, uh, what we what we know from when we're kids learning about Jupiter is one of the notable features of Jupiter is amid all of these cloud bands, there's this giant red storm, the great red spot that has been there for centuries, um, monitored by people since 1830. We know that this, that we don't know how long it's been there, but it's been there for hundreds of years. And so it's the best known feature of Jupiter and the next Juno pass, which is July 10, will go right over the Great Red Spot, which means we're going to get, as we've been getting sort of every pass with Juno, we're going to get the best pictures ever of what happens in the Great Red Spot. And so, uh, yeah, that's going to be a highlight. There are going to be a lot of uh, spectacular pictures making their rounds when when, uh, Juno Cam brings back those results in in uh, a few days. Yeah, that's exciting. You know, I think that's what everyone, like you said, everyone's mind immediately goes to this at Jupiter. Yeah. And I think Juno has proven that there's a lot more to this planet than just the red spot, but still it's everyone's favorite, right? And yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I think that it's going to be really exciting to see that thing up close. Yeah. And it's 
uh, this article talks a little bit about it, how even though we have seen it for, you know, since 1830, we still don't know that much about it. Like something that we we have known existed for centuries, but uh, hopefully Juno will give us a better understanding about how deep the storm goes into the atmosphere, uh, what makes it work, why has it persisted for so long when others haven't? Uh, There's a lot of unknown questions, and hopefully Jupiter can, or Juno can shed some light on that stuff. Yeah, and Jupiter will let us know by uh, being Jupiter, and we will uh, we'll take it from there. It's it's funny. One of the things that uh, has come up about Juno that I I wanted to mention um, because I saw an interesting Twitter exchange about this with Emily Lactawala, who's been on the show. She was tweeting about how they are working on the next set of targets for JunoCam. So every time there's a pass, there is actually a uh, citizen participation in the process. The public gets to say, here are things we want you to take pictures of. And then that is built into the the photo plan, which is pretty cool. And somebody asked Emily Lactawala uh, when she po- tweeted about this, why would you have the public do this instead of scientists like it's fun that you're having social media and stuff uh, pick this but isn't that bad science and she made a point that i think has that that i hadn't really thought about and that is worth going over about juno so when juno passes over the great red spot it's going to take some pictures those will be beautiful pictures we will all like them we've talked about how part of what goes on with nasa is its politics you need to show the public results because that makes the public realize nasa is doing things that have have value and pictures is the best way to do that now while it's passing over the great red spot it's going to be doing all sorts of other stuff with all of its other instruments that will probably tell us more about the interior of Jupiter and even per- perhaps the functioning of the Great Red Spot than any photo can because they'll be able to probe you know, much deeper into Jupiter's atmosphere and we can understand better what's going on there. That's one of the great points of the Juno mission. In fact, it turns out those instruments that are not JunoCam are the scientific instruments for this mission. This is a mission that is primarily about probing deep into Jupiter, uh, plus I think understanding its magnetic fields and some other things, but it's not about things you can see. And so one of the things they did when they designed Juno was to put this JunoCam instrument on it. And the express purpose of JunoCam is to engage the public. So it's a it's a feature, not a bug when they say, hey, tell us what you want us to take pictures of. That's actually why the camera is there is to engage the public and getting them to uh, be able to talk on social media about where they want pictures to be taken. And it's to engage the public by by returning spectacular images, photographic images of Jupiter. But neither of those is the science mission. There are a few examples where um, Emily Lactawala was saying that the that the uh, uh, there are scientists who have very specific things they want to image with JunoCam that go without you know what the what the public wants to do. Those are the things that they're going to do, but it's a very small amount. And then the rest of it is really about the public. So this is a case where uh, yeah, it's okay actually that the public is. Um, is choosing where the camera gets pointed because that's the whole point of having the camera is for the public to, to say, we want to participate in this science and to get pictures to show the public that Juno is, is at Jupiter and is returning spectacular things. But um, it's out in the open has been since the beginning. Juno cam's primary purpose is to get us all excited about Juno, not 
to do the heavy lifting for the most part of the science of the mission. And uh, I think that's kind of interesting about how you build, how you build a probe and what the instruments are and a mission plan. And, and presumably every single NASA mission now has as part of its mission plan, how do we interface with the public? Uh, Because that's a huge part of it is you need to show the public that they got their money's worth. Yeah. And I think, I think that's totally fair, right? Like that, that I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. And cause what it, what it lets them do is it, it lets the public be excited about something, right? Like some people would be excited by just the data, right? And NASA publishes all of the stuff eventually. And there would be people who get excited about that sort of stuff. But what images do like, it lets me put it as a wallpaper on my phone and then my, you know, family member sees it at the 4th of July and they ask me about it and we get to have a conversation about Juno, right? That, that's what they want. That's the win. And I've got, I've got no problem with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, it's funny. The, your gut feeling is like, well, wait a second. Shouldn't the experts be involved here? And the answer is no, (laughs) we didn't. The the whole point of this is, is to do this. And uh, that's cool. Cause it would be, let's be honest. It would be really sad if we sent this amazing probe incredibly close to Jupiter and got all the science we wanted, but didn't get any pictures, right? We want pictures. In the end, pics or it didn't happen. So here it is. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so what? Uh, what's up next? I said we're talking about my, my Lego Saturn V. I think we need to. I think I it's time to. for a Lego update. <laughs> yeah. Breaking news. So... I have completed it. There's a link in the show notes to a gallery on my website. Uh, it's it's a huge deal. Like this thing is a meter tall. So this was a, a Lego Ideas project. Uh, it is 1,969 pieces. It took me about six hours to build it. I did it over the course of like four days, kind of on and off. What's really nice about it is that it all comes apart as you would expect. So the rocket has three stages. It has an escape tower, which you can see in the photos. And it is it is just massive. One of the pictures in the gallery is the, the uh, bottom stage with a, a CD, like a, like a burned CD and a jewel case next to it. So you can have some idea of how big this thing is. <laughs> It's it's a, it's sitting next to my iMac in one of the other photos, and the thing is just crazy big. But um, it's done. the 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 level of detail is amazing. You can see from the photos, the, almost all of the outside of it is smooth. They have the paint in the right places. One thing I like is that there are no stickers. So I really dislike stickers yeah. on, on Lego sets. Ugh. I don't put them on. So my I have the the space shuttle that Lego did back in the eighties and nineties, which is huge as well and it has no markings on it because I didn't want to put stickers on it but on this the USA and the flags and everything are all uh, like painted or whatever on the pieces on the pieces yeah so you don't have to like deal with stickers they're not going to come off you know what pieces go where and I think, it, I think it makes it look better at the end of the day so all in all I'm extremely happy with it uh I can't believe it was only $119. Like I know that's a lot of money, but for a set this big, that's incredibly affordable. And there is talk of one of the co-creators of the set wants to do a, a service tower for it. 
Which it, it kind of needs because like it it stands up on its own, but not I, even if I had the floor space in my office, I'm not sure I'd want to set it up on its own because it's just sitting on the the engines at the bottom, and it feels like if this thing ever tips over, there's no putting it back together. Right. Like it would take forever. And so there's a link in the notes as well. Someone wants to do the uh, the tower. And I don't know if that would be blessed as an official project by Lego like the Saturn V was, or maybe if this person put out the plans and you could buy all the parts. Mm. Um, I think I would do it if I could. I think it'd be really cool, and then I could set it up right somewhere. Right. Uh, but it comes with stands to put it on like horizontally, so you can see in the photos. Uh, it's sitting on these blue stands, and that's how I am uh, portraying mine at the moment. Uh, just so it doesn't tip over. Well, like I said, if that thing falls over, uh, it's game over. That's that's <laughs> how they look. Back. Um, that's how it looks when you're in that uh, the one that's on display at, at the space center. In that's the, right. Yeah. In the long room, it's you know it's obviously on its side, and you can walk under it and see the the huge engines in the back and stuff. Yeah, so I've got like I got some pictures. Of, I got some pictures of that when I saw it a couple years ago. I'll put I'll find one of those and link to it. Yeah, I've got those um, too. It the the size of the Saturn V is really hard to fathom even standing under it 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 sort of it sort of blows your mind a little bit mm-hmm. just of how huge it is and uh man what a machine so yeah so the lego kit's done um i saw a bunch of people on twitter building theirs as well so i got some pictures of people so it's fun to, to talk to some listeners who were doing uh doing it at the same time a lot of people were doing it with their kids of course uh, my kids helped me for a minute and then lost interest but you know that what can you do what yeah, what can, can you do, do? Yeah, it's uh they're huge. I'm uh yeah, you know, it's on it's on those little uh little bluey stands at uh Kennedy Space Center. That that must have yeah, been there <laughs> the whole uh yeah. the whole idea. Yeah, it, I was it, just looking at my pictures and yeah, the stands are uh are blue. Yeah. That's pretty funny. It's pretty cool. So so you had a telescope adventure. I did. Uh, so I wanted to tell this story, and it actually will flow into our sponsor, too, although this is not uh, was not planned that way. But um, so we went up to the Sierra Nevada foothills this weekend for a family, you know, family weekend away with uh, with other family members. Uh, Lauren's sister lives up in the foothills outside of Fresno. And it's nice. It's that's it's basically where I grew up. I grew up a little bit north of there, but it's the exact same climate. So, so you know, warmer than the Bay Area. So mid nineties and dry, and you know, it was like going back home. And so we like to go up there and visit them and and uh, get away for the weekend. And one of the nice things about being up there is that there's not a lot of light pollution. Although there was a a first quarter moon while we were up there, so um, the moon kind of got in our way. Uh, we couldn't see it wasn't quite as spectacular as it is there's sometimes we go up there and the moon is not in our way and you get to see the milky way and it's spectacular stuff that you cannot see from where we live normally and so this time we tried to do this last time and and we failed because it was checked out but this time we checked out from our local library a telescope because our library has some experience items that you can check out it's not just you should check with your local library by the way sometimes they have um they have uh, museum passes and other things like that that are not books. Other things you can check out and have other experiences for free thanks to your library. So we checked out this telescope. And I don't have the model of it, but it was a small, relatively small telescope with a tripod. Um, and we set it up one night, uh, actually two nights, and did some looking through the telescope. And I have to admit that my wife and I were probably more 
excited about it than the kids were, although we made them look too. And as somebody who has been doing video stuff for 20 years, um, I have comments about the tripod that comes with this thing in that <laughs> it's terrible. And like, I realized, I mean, again, the library's budget isn't particularly big, but um, I would, the telescope I had when I was a kid, um, I remember it being big and having a big tripod. And now I realized like it had some features that were, that were really nice that obviously my parents had made an investment in this thing because this was just a, like a, a, a tripod, an Amazon tripod for 15 bucks is basically what it was. And when you have precision of trying to get a star or a planet or the moon in the lens of the telescope, and then you, you lock off the tripod and let go and everything drops a 10th of an inch you know, you just, it's out of, it's out of frame. So I was doing a lot of like finding the thing I wanted to have in frame and then moving it. So it was above my view, locking off the tripod and letting go and knowing it would kind of flip back down a little bit, maybe into the view. So that I, I now know if I buy a tripod at some point to invest in a, in a good tripod, ideally with some fine adjustments um, that they make on some, because that was really annoying. But uh, we had uh, a couple different eyepieces and a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice tri- uh, telescope, and uh, we saw some cool stuff. So we started with uh, setting it up for the moon, and we had a little moon filter to put on it so your eyes didn't get blasted by the brightness of the moon. And we set that up, and again, the first quarter moon, so it's half illuminated, and there's nice shadow definitions going right over some of the um, of the bigger craters sort of to the bottom of the moon from our perspective here in California. And uh, that was pretty cool to see the moon that close up. But um, then I I kind of, my, my wife and kids took over or did that part. And then I took over to do some more ambitious things. And we looked at Jupiter, which, um, which was very impressive because although on this telescope, you couldn't see the horizontal sort of cloud bands, which I understand with a slightly more powerful telescope, you can see. Um, you could, we, we could see three of the Galilean moons, which is, it's quite a funny thing to resolve this bright star in the sky, right? That you see. And then you look at it through a telescope and realize that you were seeing a planet because you can see it's got a visible disc. It's not a point Mm -hmm. of light. And you've got these three little dots right around it. And it's like, this is what Galileo saw and and would see night to night and realize that these things, and it's like, that's Europa and that's Ganymede. And that's, I forget what the other one was that we saw but uh yeah so that was pretty great um and then uh the um callisto maybe yeah probably callisto was the third one and uh io was not visible but um that was cool and then we and then i uh gave saturn a shot because saturn was also up at this point and I thought, I've looked at, through a, tel- a telescope at Saturn before, and that was like the key that's like the the solar system's best if, if you can get that in the view of a telescope. So I, I managed to get it uh, lined up and in focus and all of that and uh, and told my, my wife and my father-in-law, it's like, all right, check that one out. And that was one of those like, oh my God kind of moments. Cause it's like, yeah, that's Saturn. Like there's a ball and there's a ring and you can like <laughs> see the black space between the ring and the planet like and and it was tilted a little bit it was a a nice nice angle you got to see the ring shape you got to see the the planet shape 
And uh, it's pretty spectacular because it's like, there it is. You're looking at that. The light is going from the sun. It's hitting Saturn. It's bouncing back to Earth into this telescope, into your eye. You are seeing Saturn live right now with your own eyes. It's pretty awesome. So that was, uh, the, those were the, uh, the highlights of it. But I do recommend like having a telescope adventure. If there's a telescope you can borrow or go to the library or something like that, it's a lot of fun. You don't actually have to be out in the, in the dark spaces, although it can help depending on, um, you know, where you live. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was fun to have that, the end and, uh, have my, like my, uh, one of my, I will, I will keep who it is, uh, nameless, but one of my, wife's uh, relatives who was participating in this uh, when we said you can see Jupiter's moons the response was Jupiter has moons and I was like oh boy <laughs> oh boy yes yes it you're, does you're, te- and you can you're see teaching them. the masses yeah it was pretty cool it is pretty cool the uh, I do have to ask when you saw Saturn did you hear a tiny no <laughs> you know it's not powerful enough of a telescope for uh, for me bummer. for me to think about Cassini a little bit more and how sad it that it's going to be taking the plunge pretty soon. But, you know, yeah, you're thinking of the rings and, and you know that Cassini is diving like uh, in, in between cool. the planet and the rings. And you can see that gap from the telescope. So pretty, pretty great. So that was we were lucky, too, that we just happened. Our visit happened to uh, match having um, as unlucky as we were about where the moon was blasting everything out. We did get to see in the evening without it being too late. We had uh, both Jupiter and Saturn in view. And that was pretty great. That's awesome. Yeah. You can tell us about our sponsor. All right. Well, this is this is where our sponsor just sort of accidentally comes in and uh, ties it all together because this episode is brought to you by Luminos, the all-in-one mobile astronomy app for iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch from Wobbleworks. It's in its seventh year of free feature updates, bringing the power of desktop astronomy programs to your mobile device. So I'm standing out there in the dry grass with the telescope. And what do I do? Open up my iPhone and open up Luminos and it immediately gives me a view of the sky where I can see, okay, that's the moon and that's Jupiter and that's Saturn. Like I've got my view. It knows where I am. It knows when it is. It has already put all of that stuff into its database and is showing me everything that's in the sky right now. But there's also a, a today button, basically a right now, what's up, literally what's up, like what's up in the sky right now button that you tap. And it, and it says, okay, here's the stuff I've got for you. I've got planets, I've got stars, I've got comets, I've got constellations. There's like all of these different ways that you can kind of browse what is visible. So I tap on planets and what does Luminous bring up? But like a little, um, it's almost like a Gantt chart for those project planners out there. It's going to show you like what uh, planets are visible right now and what will be visible later. And it'll actually show you based on your location, it will show you like Jupiter is up and will be up until two in the morning. Um, you know, Venus will be up at four in the morning, but isn't up now, isn't visible now. So you can very quickly zoom in. In fact, you can tap on any of those. So I tap on Saturn and it, and it gives me information about Saturn and I can tap again. And I'm, and it is, it has shown me exactly where in the sky Saturn is. Now Saturn's very bright, so it's fairly easy to see, but you could do this with satellites and with, uh, with, uh, comets and other things too. So that's what we use to orient, and in fact, that was what with um, with Jupiter, I was able to zoom in on Luminos to the point where it would show what was expected uh, in the telescope eyepiece in terms of what the those moons were. It showed the position of the moons accurately and the names of them. So I could say, oh, that one's Ganymede, that one's Europa. 
And uh, so that was pretty great. And in fact, of course, it's all updated in real time. So when we resumed into Saturn, not only did it show me exactly how Saturn was going to be oriented in the telescope in terms of its angle, where the rings were going to be pointed, you know, its angle toward the Earth. But in fact, if you zoom in that closely, you can actually start to see it drift to, in this case, it was drifting to the upper right as the Earth rotates. It was moving, you know, so I knew what direction it was moving as we were searching for it. Because when you're looking at something like, a plant, well, really anything, in a telescope, you know, as the Earth rotates, everything is going to kind of like rotate out of your field of view. And you've got to kind of keep it in view unless you've got a, an automatic, automatically moving telescope that compensa- compensates for the rotation of the Earth. So, um, great experience with Luminos using my iPhone this app is constantly optimized for the latest versions of iOS. I wonder what they're going to have for iOS 11. You buy it, you get it, you get uh, no in-app purchases, no annoying ads, you get the updates. Uh, pretty great. Version 9.2 is out now with these beautiful 100 megapixel textured views of Earth and Moon, as well as precise eclipse path maps for all of us who are going to be out there checking out the August total solar eclipse. There are precise path maps of that eclipse inside Luminos. It's got everything. Wobbleworks is a family business with more than 50 years of software experience, and they have crafted Luminos to delight both current astronomy fans and new ones like the ones I was trying to make this weekend. Detailed planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, and so much more. You can find video screenshots and more at wobbleworks.com or just go to the App Store and search for Luminos, L-U-M-I-N. OS. Thank you, Luminos, for helping me identify planets and moons and things in our telescope this past weekend and for everything you do for supporting Liftoff. All right. So we have a, a second anniversary to celebrate on this episode. All right. So it's 20 years since Mars Pathfinder and Sojourner landed on Mars. Uh, uh, friends, really. Little buddies. They, well, they, they, they went together. They're traveling companions, yeah. in fact. There you go. I like that. That's good. Uh, so Pathfinder was a lander. It was uh, named, the full name was the Carl Sagan Memorial Station. And mm-hmm. the the entire mission, one of the objectives was to prove the development of a faster, less expensive spacecraft. And so this thing had three years of development and a cost of under $150 million were the, were the yeah. goals. This is the faster, better, cheaper program, which, you know, has has changed over time to the idea that you can have things that maybe have a little bit more budget than this. But this was done fast and on a very low budget and they landed it and they got, you know, and then they got their uh, they got their skateboard. So which we're going to get into. But it's like uh, pretty amazing that they, this was not one of those two decade long billion dollar missions that ha- that that this was something very different. And so the you had the the memorial station that was it was stationary and then we had the rover and i think what i wrote down in my notes was it looks like a science skateboard yeah (laughs) no it's exactly it is it is i think somebody said at the time will everybody we put a skateboard on mars (laughs) (laughs) uh on earth it weighed just 23 pounds and it was the first rover to operate outside of the earth moon system. So there had been rovers uh, on the moon surface, but not anywhere past that. And this mission, I think, what I remember about this, I mean, I was a kid, but what I remember was the the landing. So oh, yeah. the, the entire, 
the platform and Sojourner were all wrapped up in this crazy airbag system. Yeah. And it basically just bounced its way across the Martian soil until it came to a resting place. Yeah. And it, there's some pictures of this in the show notes. There's a, And it, there's some great concept videos about it. This is They don't do this anymore because the landers have gotten bigger. And mm-hmm. there's a limit. This is a very lightweight thing, so it allowed them to do this. But this was we've talked about this before about the difficulty of landing things on Mars. That you have the speed to get to Mars, and then you've got to get in, and the, the Mars atmosphere is thin, but it's there. So you have to deal with the friction of the Mars atmosphere. But then you have to land, which means you have to cut a lot of speed because the atmosphere is not going to slow you down that right. much. So it's very hard to get anything to soft land on Mars. And their solution here was to bounce the last part that that uh, they could just inflate the the rugged airbag and they figured that it would uh, you know it would bounce a little bit and then eventually come to a stop and then they would deflate and it would open like uh, a bunch of petals like a uh, like a flower and uh, you would and it totally worked and they had an accelerometer as my memory an accelerometer in it so when the data was coming back they were actually able to count the bounces as it went down as it went down they got the data back of like it bounced six times or whatever it was they knew how many times it bounced before it settled it's pretty it's pretty wild and the the rover now uses big like sky crane deal yeah right well they're, they're lowering it it's the idea that you have the retro rockets that fire in order to get close to the surface but you don't want to fire all the way down to the surface because it's going to blow up a lot of dust and it's going to cover your solar panels with dust so today what they do is they have the, the, the retros that fire and slow it down a lot they have a parachute and then and that does the first part and then they slow it down even further but then they drop it on a on a cable so that the the um, actual retros are not firing on the surface to blow up as much dust. Um, and so then, you know, the little cable comes out and they go, and it goes down and they drop it and like, okay. And then they, and then it blasts away and crashes nearby, uh, which is super clever and weird and funny. But here instead they're like, okay, we're going to do, I think it's parachute. And then below a certain point with the parachute, we just drop the, drop the ball <laughs> and see where it bounces. So it it comes to a, a a landing and the the base the the memorial station was really for collecting meteorological information about the Martian atmosphere. So Jason, you have your weather station in your backyard. NASA had its weather station yeah. on Mars. It was a combination parking garage for the skateboard and weather station. That's right. And so <laughs> this picture cracks me up. Uh, the rover was more advanced. It had a spectrometer to look at components of the rocks and soil that it was driving over. And it had two black and white cameras in addition to one color one. These were only 484 by 768, uh, but two looking out the front, one looking out the back. And the the lander also had uh, had a camera, had a stereos a stereoscopic camera as well. So really looking at the the wind and they had some uh, magnetic platforms on the on the base and it would basically collect particles of iron in the in the breeze and help give scientists an idea of how much particulate and how much uh, iron was was potentially in the the air and the dust around mm. this area. 
the um, and the stereo cameras also you know there's so much that is paving the way for future missions here but stereo cameras mean that they were able to get a 3d view and 3d pictures of the of the scene um and in fact there's a a book that i have that is a great book that is photos from this mission that is and and there's a whole chunk of them that are 3d and it, it, the book actually came, it's like a coffee table book. It came with 3D glasses so that you could do the stereoscopic views of Mars. And then it's like you're there. And it's, uh, it's a pretty great, pretty great book that you may be able to find used, although you may have to supply your own 3D glasses at this point. Um, we've come a long way since then. It's funny to actually revisit this book 20 years later and realize that, you know, how much more we've done with other missions. But at the time... The idea that you could, they, they would post these things on the internet and you could, if you had your own 3D glasses and it's like you are looking at 3D images from the surface of Mars. It was so amazing, you know, back in, you know, whatever this was, 97, right? So uh, it was amazing. And the Pathfinder and Sojourner, they sort of laid, laid the groundwork uh, set the tone, if you will, for future Martian totally. missions uh, in a couple of ways. So the rover lasted a lot longer than anticipated. The mission was only supposed to be seven Martian days with a possible extension to 30. Ended up being active for 83 days and traveling 330 feet, which is short compared to what we're used to now, but at the time was absolutely far above and beyond what was expected of it yeah now we now we know that i mean it's funny they went to the other missions thinking well the same sort of thing but in hindsight right this totally paves the way for that where you realize that what the engineers think is gonna is gonna work and how they engineer and then and then there's like it's like scotty on star trek a little bit you under promise and over deliver and that that's what happened with all of these missions so far is that they've all lasted way longer than was expected but it started with the skateboard even the skateboard lasted way longer than anyone thought it could. And it it was a successful mission from the standpoint of the the science as well. So it showed the the first or some of the first evidence that water was on the Martian surface at some point in the past. Uh it came across uh rounded pebbles and and rocks made up of different types of material that were pushed or clumped together by something and so I had to say that that both of those could take place from moving water. Also showed through those cameras a uh, blue sunrise and sunset of Mars due to the dust in the atmosphere. Again, pictures we're used to seeing now, but 20 years ago were were all brand new. And then again, looking at the particulate in the dust uh, and, in, and in the air with those magnets on board. And I think what's most interesting about this, you, you spoke about the book, but that was only really part of it. This was, I mean, if you think about 20 years ago, that was sort of the beginning of the internet becoming a consumer thing, right? I remember getting dial-up access in this time. And these pictures from this mission went up nearly real time onto the NASA website. And it was the first mission that really had that opportunity to share this information as quickly as possible. Before this, all you really had were books or you had news stories and coverage and you had, you know, articles and that sort of thing. But Pathfinder was right at the exact right time for this stuff to go directly to the public via the internet. And NASA was publishing updates several times a week. And you know, now, you know, what we talked about the whole first half of the show, 
those missions, we know what we know because NASA is updating the public on a regular basis. And you and I don't have some sort of special access. We have access to the thing everyone else does. And Pathfinder was the first in that in that tradition. Yeah, it, it's also worth keeping in mind that um, this was the first landing since the Viking missions in the 70s. So 20 years had gone by since we had landed uh, a station on Mars. So it was a big, and it it paved the way for a lot more, but this was a big, there had been some failed missions, um, but here we had, um, we had modern equipment. We were able to search. Uh, Previously, we had just had sort of the landing sites of various Mars missions over the years. And uh, so we got new, new landing site, better equipment, and the ability now to have an instrument essentially that on that skateboard that would could move around and give us close up looks at the stuff that was around the lander, which had never been done before. This mission has come up in pop culture and you are our pop pop culture expert. You knew what happened. So first off, and people who like Star Trek will not like to be reminded of this, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is footage of the Pathfinder and Sojourner was integrated into the opening sequence for Star Trek Enterprise, a not particularly loved Star Trek series with a particularly loathed opening credit sequence for reasons not related to Mars probes, but it's in there. And uh, most notably, I would say it is a plot point in the movie The Martian, which you and I watched and talked about, uh, where Mark Watney has to go basically steal stuff (laughs) from the Mars Pathfinder in order to communicate, to kind of hack his system to communicate back to to Earth. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I... I love that idea of like just you're on Mars or or on the moon and you you're like, hey, I could go get that that stuff that we landed here a long time ago. And that's <laughs> yeah. like the whole that whole plot point in there is he goes and steals the stuff from a previous mission. It's pretty great. So I think uh, I think that does it for this week. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we celebrated some anniversaries landing landing uh, stuff on Mars on the 4th of July. Good call. Whoever figured that one out. I know that that was physics and luck, but also somebody thinking how much better could that be? Putting a Jupiter probe in orbit around uh, around uh, the biggest planet in the solar system on July 4th. Again, physics, but also amazing how that happens, right? Fourth of July, mm-hmm. space missions, amazing. Again, yeah. it's a little bit of science and a little bit of PR and it's all, that's sort of how you have to do it if you're going to get money to explore the solar system. So yeah. Great, uh, great stuff. I wonder what we'll have in a couple of weeks, but uh, there'll probably be like more exoplanets and who knows what else. I, I, there's never, we've been doing this. So this is episode 50. It is. So we've been doing this for roughly a hundred weeks, roughly two years. And thanks to everybody out there who's listening. It turns out that enough stuff happens in space and related topics that we can talk about it every two weeks. There's enough out there for us to do this, which I think maybe at the beginning was a question, but it's turned out that there's always something happening in space. Space is big and there are always things happening in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I recognize the the date as well as we started recording that, Oh, Oh, it's 50. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, 
I think that we have found a, a pattern in news and explainers, and and we're going to get back to some interviews hopefully before long. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a fun two years. Let's let's keep doing it. Let's. I agree. We'll we'll keep it going. And uh, and again, just really appreciate the people listen to this too, because really, Stephen, you and I decided to do this because we were excited about space more yeah. than we were yeah. uh, anything else. More than we are uh, equipped to actually do this. Uh, but you can find the show notes this week, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 50. You can get in touch with us there as well. The show is on Twitter at liftoff podcast. Jason is there at J Snell. That has two L's, secret second L. And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our, our next episode, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.